1: Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. It's a delight to uh, bring back our good friend, our dear friend, Brett Johnson. He's a partner at the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm based here uh, locally, offices around the country. SWlaw.com is their website. He's our uh, constitutional elections uh, law expert. And uh, I think we're going to do a little uh, political theory with him as well. Brett, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us.
2: Oh, well, thanks for
1: having me. You betcha. All right. So, first of all, let's let's do this Supreme Court case that came down this week, Moore v. Harper. I noticed an interesting—you um, I you know, this is so far out of my bailiwick, I was looking forward to you talking to us about it—you know uh, Michael Ludig, former Ju- uh, federal judge Michael Ludig, very well respected. He tweeted that uh, it's hard to overstate how important this case is to constitutional law. To which Randy Barnett, a professor of law, said, no, it isn't. So I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what to make of it. Can you tell us what's going on and kind of settle the Barnett-Ludig dispute in Morvie v. Harper here?
2: <laughs> well, they're both right. Okay. 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 There there you go. Very um, Talmudic of you. Good. Yeah, okay. yeah they're exactly. I'm being diplomatic for a second. Um, only a second, of course. Uh, All right, so Wade's background, uh, Moore versus Harper, North Carolina case, the state legislature in that state had the ability to to draw the legislative maps, which we've talked about on multiple occasions on this show, Uh, both the legislative, state legislative maps, as well as the federal maps, okay, so that's the uh, the Congress, so I make sure everybody has context that there's actually a divide. The same body creates the maps, but obviously... There are sometimes different uh, restrictions because one is controlled by the U.S. Constitution, the federal congressional districts, and the other side is controlled by the state constitution. And what what happened in North Carolina is that there was an initiative passed that the legislature could not pass um, uh, uh basically from their a judicial perspective a, a, a bill uh, a correct map that was constitutional that it would go up to the supreme court and the in the North Carolina Supreme Court and that supreme court could then uh, institute its own maps mm-hmm. and basically because the legislature didn't do it correctly. Mm-hmm. North Carolina state legislature sued on that because of exactly what happened, and they they said to the U.S. Supreme Court that the Constitution inside the elections clause is quite clear. It says that the state legislatures will be the ones who create um, the, the political maps for redistricting process. Okay, And that has been tossed around for many, many years, and it's called the Independent State Legislature Theory. It okay. um, has been, gotten a lot of traction over, over the last couple years, especially, again, always a link to Arizona. We have a commission here taken away from the state legislature and put into an ind- independent redistricting commission, right. Right. And, and so that's where the whole theory kind of started. Okay. Um, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts had written previously... You know, kind of saying some uh, favorable things about this theory, and obviously uh, Justice Thomas did it, as as did others. Well, in, in Moore re Harper, um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts basically put an end to that theory. Um, is that the state legislatures can have controls as instituted by state law, and that there is a judicial ro- role, state courts um, primarily to ensure that those rules are followed and that the state constitutions are followed. Now where the controversy came into is, is that the chief justice Roberts took it one step further and said that not only do state courts um, have that role, but so do federal courts. And so if state courts aren't willing to do the job, the federal courts need to step in to ensure that the federal U S constitutional requirements are being met. And I think that that is where, um, the Constitution is not necessarily resolved. So from the judge you mentioned, his, his argument is that the judicial role in the process, the judicial role as the third branch of government has been preserved and reasserted. From the other perspective is what does exactly that mean? What guardrails do the courts actually employ? Can they draw their own maps or do they need to go back to um, the commissions or the legislature? So that is the gap that people are saying um, has not been resolved.
1: And it was an interesting, <coughs> excuse me, Brett, it was an interesting split too, wasn't it? Uh, Amy Barrett was on the majority here. Contra, do I have that right? Contra Clarence you Thomas and Alito, right? I think. I think I have yeah, that right.
2: Uh, that that's absolutely right, and then Chief Justice Roberts is right. the one who wrote it. So it was a six majority, um, three of the conservatives, three of the liberals, and then three of the conservatives filed a, um, a dissenting opinion um, that would have given more rights back to the state legislature and really preserved the local jurisdiction um, of of elections. Now, it, it, for for purposes of the law, what this is being stated is that this is going to provide a little bit more certainty. Um, that the states in the next two years or year and a half, I guess, will have the opportunity to ensure that there's those controls, those safeguards in place to um, uh, for the 2024 election. Although this case was about redistricting, it obviously overflows into the whole election in general.
1: Let, if I could ask you to frame it maybe for us this way too, Brett, if you don't mind, um, the Wall Street Journal editorialized on it today, saying this result, the result here isn't the runaway victory that. Per- That progressives claim, but it will lead to more election law controversies. I wonder if you might, what would the progressives celebrate here? What would the conservative argument be against what the progressives are celebrating here, that this isn't in the Constitution, that this is an invented constitutional role, or how would you cast that?
2: So the progressives progressives are going to argue that this is, is in favor because it provides that check on state legislatures. Yeah, and and, yeah. and as, as the state legislatures yeah. get more and more polarized, there's not that much of a middle ground anymore in yeah. a lot of these legislatures, that it allows the progressive, um, on both sides of the fence, by the way, to, to be able to run to court. Yeah. So, but what the, again? The the criticism is is that well, what is really the role of the judiciary? Mm-hmm. Can the judiciary be deciding elections? Mm-hmm. Can they be drawing lines? And the ambiguity there is what is concerning,
1: mm-hmm. and that's what will lead to more controversies because it wasn't settled here, really.
2: It will, it, it, and it will. This will open up. This will open up quite a bit more litigation from both sides uh, during the election season. It just, it just will. So well, for for yeah. lawyers, this is the, um, you know, guaranteed employment yeah. law. <laughs> uh, but, why do, but why why? does
1: John Roberts want more of that? Because it seems on a few cases you see a lot of this with the kind of bakery, marriage-type uh, civil rights claims. And I'm guessing, you know, that will be what we divine out of the, the Harvard and, and North Carolina case, uh, race-based cases— they seem to want to be very narrow and not solve an issue. It seems more and more that's the case. Maybe I'm over-reading it or misreading it, Brett.
2: I don't think you're misreading it. I think that there's, from my perspective of reading the tea leaves from Chief Justice Roberts, there's two things. Number one, he is a pure jurist. He firmly believes that the judiciary does have a role as an equal power, um, both at the state and the federal level. So he never wants to diminish that right. Secondarily, he always wants the legislature and the executive to always be concerned, looking over their shoulder and saying, what would the judiciary do? Mm -hmm. And in doing that, he's hoping that they get more back to the middle ground, something that's more going to be palatable to the judiciary when the legislature and the executive are taking different actions. That's my reading of the tea leaves as to what he was trying to do here and in other cases.
1: Okay. All right. And I guess in a certain way you could think of that as a conservative position in certain respects as well. I remember after the Dred Scott. I wasn't there, but I remember studying after the Dred Scott case. Abraham Lincoln made a great speech saying, "This is not a case of broad implication. This is only a case as between these two parties, and we should keep that in mind. It does not. It does not settle a lot of other laws and a lot of other implications that can be divined from it. We have to accept this case, but we don't have to accept the general reading of it for the purposes of, you know, constitutional and political theory going forward. In a certain respect." maybe that's what john roberts is doing these are only cases i'm deciding between these parties i am not trying to make vast and wide uh vast and wide decisions and implications maybe you know, it, it, uh, um, I'm going to push back a little oh, bit on that Please. because
2: modern, 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 judicial, um, you know, philosophy and perspective. Obviously, reading the statutes and giving plain meaning to the laws. Yeah. But in but there's also a reality yeah. that on yeah. every case, yep. Dobbs now more that those That's cases are going that. to be mined and be yep. used across the spectrum yep. as to how people interpret laws.
1: No, it's a fair point, and that is what we do use precedent for. I mean, we do call these things precedent no matter how much Lincoln wanted to overturn the precedent of Dred v. Scott and work towards it. But that is true that uh, that, you know, I guess in, in practices like yours I used to see this a lot. You know, they would look at the when a case was going up to the Supreme Court, you would think about who's the lawyer that best knows uh, that justice who's going to probably write the opinion. Right. You, you You have to think that way these days, don't you? <laughs>
2: You, you do. Yeah. It's just like doing any kind of jury consulting.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you for that, Brett. You want to do a little political philosophy and social compact theory on the other side of this break? You bet. All right. Brett Johnson is my guest. He is a uh, partner at the law firm of Snell & Wilmer, based here locally. He's our constitutional and elections law expert. And he's been saying for a couple weeks he wants to talk to us about uh, compact theory and social contract theory Um uh, philosophy, political philosophy, political theory. So uh, he didn't prejudice this jury. I don't know where he's gonna, what he's gonna say. But we'll come right back and find out. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Brett Johnson is our guest. He is a partner with the law firm of Snell & Wilmer here in town, one of uh, my favorite people, and he is um, our show's constitutional election law experts. Uh, But he also knows a lot about politics and political theory, too. He's a great uh, campaign attorney as well. And, Brett, you've been saying you want to come on and talk a little bit about a concern you have versus uh, social contract or social compact theory, and, uh, well— Here's your chance. What do we got? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, what what ails you? <laughs>
2: well, you know, this, this actually came up that uh, because of recent visits, uh, quote quite honestly, to California and certain other jurisdictions that have, you know, lessened the law or the the standards of law. You know, in the in the sense of um, being able to. Uh, basically steal from other individuals and not really have any consequences because of prosecutorial discretion or law enforcement laws that are restricting law enforcement on being able to enforce what are just standard laws that have been, you know, in place for literally thousands of years, well before, you know, the United States, very simple laws. But, and that goes, when I was thinking about this as I was traveling through some of these jurisdictions, it came back on, on the social contract, right? And the yeah. so, social contract, for those of you who don't, don't know, um, and it's a, it's a concept that, that used to be taught very regularly in, in either junior high or freshman, sophomore year in high school. Totally, absolutely, it was, Yeah, yeah it's it very simple, and, and it was, um, made famous, at least in the United States, by a guy named John Locke, and, and that's, uh, John Locke wrote about the social contract. And our founders really relied on John Locke and the the folks who came before him, Hobbes and Rousseau, who came before John Locke on on this kind of very simple, very very simple
1: concept. Wherever any number of men in the state of nature enter to society to make one people, one body politic under one supreme government, right? That's John Locke in the Second Treatise. Then you have a compact between people, yes.
2: And then you have a compact, and, yep. I, and it's a very, and you, that's very good. That was a good quote there, and, and it's very, very. <laughs> I wake up contract. saying
1: it every morning. You know, it's just part of my morning, <laughs> my morning ablutions. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs>
2: yes. But it's it's basically the natural right to life, liberty, and property. Right, right, and right. and and you're born with that. The government doesn't give you that. That is something that is an inalienable right for all of us. But you are giving up. And when you come into a community, you're giving up your vigilante rights mm-hmm. to basically protect your personal right to life, liberty, and property, to be a, as part of a community, and then the community will help enforce that straight, natural law, mm-hmm. right? Now, you're giving up your ability to be a vigilante. Yep. Well, the, the problem is, is when the community stops enforcing the basic law right? And obviously it's been extrapolated for a long period of time and taken out of context, but the very simple one. I'm able to own my property. I'm able to live my life without being harmed. And I'm able to have a little bit of sense of liberty in how I, how I am in my life. I'm able to be free. And when that, that is given up, that and the, and the government, the community, is refusing to enforce that that starts breaking the social contract mm-hmm. that we all have as a matter of course, regardless of the Constitution, regardless of the laws. And I think that that is going to be concerning as we're going uh, through, you know, these next different elections, as we're discussing different laws and different where we want to go as a country. I think that one of the conversations has to get back to what are, is the bare minimum, base minimum of the social contract, and I think that's what's lacking.
1: You were in San Francisco recently.
2: I was. I've, I was. And, and, I and I'm wondering,
1: I'm, I'm just wondering if what you saw there, you know, was basically Thunderdome, which is the opposite <laughs> of what we enter into with the social compact. It makes its language into the um, American uh, lore via the, I, I think the first reference to it is in uh, the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, written by John Adams where he says a a social compact, I think those are the first words in American Ease that mentions it, is by which the whole people covenants with each citizen and each citizen with the whole people that all shall be governed by certain laws for the common good. And that's the point. That's the point you're making, for the common good. And we give up, yes, certain natural rights like the right of self-defense or any other right to protect ourselves for the common good because we're entering into an agreement with society and the government. And, Brett, if I can just – if I'm echoing and picking up what you're putting down, what you're saying is once the government uh, abdicates or abnegates their responsibility in this compact, where does it leave the people? It leaves the people in – in, uh, in extremis, it leads the people to the kind of situation we're reading about in New York right now where uh, Daniel Penny, right, thinks he has to or believes he has to or, or does indeed – uh, protect he and the fellow passengers from a, 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 someone who's probably hopped up in a raving lunatic threatening to hurt other passengers, because there's no cops. It's a no-go zone for cops, right? This is a breakdown of the social... Con- an example of what can happen. Vigilantism. Yeah,
2: justified or not. We're not and making the point of whether justified it's justified or not. not. Right. Just, right, Justified or not. Or right. or even, even um, the shame or counterculture, whatever you want to call it, right. that when somebody is trying to exercise their, their natural rights, which yep. is to protect themselves, and instead they're, they're shamed into, into doing it. And I think that that goes to it, too. It's just, we've, we've gone so far, and San Francisco was, was the, um, the example I was giving. And, and of course, obviously people are, are walking with their, you know, voting with their feet in the sense that they're leaving um, San Francisco and Northern right, California sure. for other sticking. Some people can't. But at some point there is going to be a breaking point um, and it's it's not going to be good unless there is a there is a concept that people start understanding the social contract and what they've given up, and then what they're going to be holding their elected leaders to to ensure that the social contract is maintained. Uh, at the base level. And that's, that's where I think that, that uh, um, more and more folks are going to have to start thinking about that
1: concept. Right. Because it's a trust in the government as much as it is a trust in your fellow being to live under these laws that we pass mutually, which requires that the laws must be enforced. Boy, there's a lot of implication to that whole set of points. And it's all based on the notion really from our founding, right, that we can make laws uh, for uh, one another, um, uh, because we're all equal. We enter into this, shall we say, contract, social contract, as equal parties, like any other contract, right? And when yes, one exactly. side breaches it, then, you know, where wh- wh- where are we left, right? That's the point.
2: Right. Exactly. And then the concern is, is that you go back to Hobbes, right. who believed that that relationship was with the king. Right. And that the king had the ability to make those controls, and the social contract was with that and if you revert back to that 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 is a scenario where the whole concept of democracy just goes goes by the wayside mm-hmm. because now you're you're talking about an authoritarian type of regime regardless of the social contract that may re- relate with that king mm-hmm. so it's it's not it's not going to be um, a, a good scenario, but what is concerning is is that you know you talk to a fourteen or fifteen year old kid and they have no concept of what the social contract is or what their responsibility is within
1: right. it or that they have any um, investment in abiding by it uh, or that anyone has an investment in abiding by it. you know another corollary to all of this thinking too is you know how does the social compact stand up in a country so big and diverse as it has become. Charles de Gaulle famously says, How can anyone govern a country with 246 varieties of cheese? You know, we may have to start thinking about that. You and I ought to write something on this, Brett.
2: I think we should.
1: All right. All right. You have entree to certain law journals and stuff like that you can get us into? Oh. Yeah, we'll, Absolutely. We'll figure, we'll figure Absolutely. something out. What a great we'll, we'll thought. Get a, we'll get a,
2: yeah. yeah, we'll get a dictionary for the big
1: words. <laughs> we'll get a dictionary <laughs> for the big words. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Johnson, you're the best. I'm glad we laid this down. A lot of food for thought. We'll we'll come back to it. I appreciate it. Brett Johnson of the Snell and Wilmer thank Law Firm. Bless you, sir. Godspeed. Thank you. You bet. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Threats to our financial freedom and stability are growing china russia india brazil saudi arabia they're all conducting international trade in local currencies not the u.s dollar and the list continues to grow rising interest rates and bad loans are exposing the banking system and causing failures the biden administration is sending hundreds of billions abroad while depleting our strategic oil reserves and ignoring crumbling infrastructure here at home however the biggest financial threat may be coming from within Central bank digital currency is real. The patents have been filed and the big banks have released plans for implementation. But the veterans at the Midas Gold Group see devastating implications. End of cash, end of financial privacy, big government able to see your every purchase, ties to social credit. Own private currency, which is gold and silver. And now you can get free silver just for asking the Midas Gold Group how you can use your retirement to own physical gold. Call the Midas Gold Group today, 480-360-3000, 480-360-3000, or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com, MidasGoldGroup.com. Conversation with Brett is kind of kind of apt to the Supreme Court decision on Harvard and North Carolina, as is what he said about the social contract, or the social compact theory, as it's sometimes known. Because the only way a social compact theory works is if all people within it are equal, or treated equally, or created equally. All contract, for example, as we were saying, or compact, implies that you have to have an equality between contracting parties. I can't sign a contract That will be legally valid with young David if, you know, we're not in an equal situation, if we're not equal parties here. The idea of a compact or a contract implies the ability of the parties to make the contract or the compact validly uh, on both sides without being duress, fraud or inequality exercised by one party upon the other. It also has to imply some kind of voluntary nature and rationality. It has to not conflict with public policy, which, of course, is what all these race-based affirmative action schemes do. They don't treat people equally. It is a violation of the social compact. They treat people equally in the same sense that George Orwell said everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others, and this has been with us for this is this this has been with us since the Declaration of Independence, but it predates the United States Constitution, um, the Massachusetts Bill of Rights. I was saying John Adams: the body politic is formed by a voluntary association of individuals; it is a social compact by which the whole people covenants with each citizen and each citizen with the whole people that all shall be governed by certain laws for the common good. Now. If that wasn't clear enough about the necessity of us all being on the same plane, go a little further into the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, and it says all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, seeking and obtaining safety, and happiness. The only reason we can be a society of, of of equality is if we enter into a social compact based on that equality and these race-based decisions have been a sundering, a wrecking and rendering and rending, a wrecking and rending of that equality which we discussed in my opening monologue we were all th- based on our our whole project here was based on. So while there is the shredding of what would you call it, the shredding of, uh, the tearing of garments, the shredding and tearing of garments by university and college administrators and the left, the ACLU, Joe Biden, the denunciations of the Supreme Court. Joe Biden said it's not a normal Supreme Court. That's a nice way to respect our institutions, isn't it? Um, While all that is going on, I'm going to make a prediction that This decision handed down today, this 6-3 decision on Harvard and University of North Carolina, is going to put us on the path of more colorblindness and less racism and a stronger social compact amongst all of us, among all of us, because we will now be on equal footing. And if these colleges who are whining and wailing about, oh dear, what will we do now? Think about what's underlying that. What's underlying that? to repeat is the view that they don't think they can get minority applicants or candidates into their schools minority students into their schools well if they think they can't then who's the racist here what institutional racist barriers have they been applying by that won't allow americans of any color into their schools Welcome back to the Seth Leson show. yeah, cool will change. It opens with the lyrics, "I was born in the sign of Water, I believe, which is why we were calling it a water sign young david and but I mean, if you really want water music uh in my constant attempt to acculturate you, how have we done on you uh listening to albums like "Son of a Son of a Sailor or your jimmy buffett have you Have you stepped up on that yet? That's on the list. On the list for the 4th of July holiday.
3: We, we, just, we just got to Merle Haggard yesterday. Yeah, nothing ha- Merle Haggard has nothing to do with water. No, you're right. It has nothing to do with water. But he does have a lot to do with the 4th you of July. You went off
1: on your own to get Merle Haggard. I never recommended Merle Haggard. I mentioned John, one John, lyric yeah, of one of his songs, <laughs> and you became you Ensorcelled by Merle Haggard for some reason. I became an acolyte overnight. You then. became Ensorcelled. By Merle ha- and start sending me Merle Haggard songs I did not ask for <laughs> and didn't need. They're great
3: for America. I, I don't need acculturation from
1: you. I'm trying to get you to understand Jimmy, B- I know full well the oeuvre of Merle Haggard. Oeuvre. A word he we would not talk use. talk about that, yes. Okay. Me, yes. All right. I wonder if there's I, anything I can culture you on. Yeah, there is. Uh, food I won't eat. I want <laughs> to... Um, I want to uh, actually ask you a question with regard to all this race-based affirmative action talk sure. that's in the news today. You know, some years ago, 20 years ago, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in the Supreme Court opinion that she suspected we would not need race-based affirmative action plans some 25 years in advance of when she wrote her opinion about 20 years ago. And... um you know it just dawned dawned on me. I was remembering in those days that when you taught American history to young people, people born you know after me, probably people born around your time, they learned about segregation, they learned about Jim Crow, they learned about separate water fountains and separate you know hotels where you could stay. Separate, what they called luncheonettes, particularly in the South, or dining facilities. And they would say things like, you mean we really used to do that? It was so anathema to them, but it was also so alien to them that we actually had an America like this in their father's lifetime or grandfather's lifetime that separated people by race that way, that segregated people. And I'm wondering, you're a little bit younger than that generation I was taking notice of at the time when I was noticing it, like in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I'm just wondering what you thought, if you thought that way when you learned about segregation in America. Did Was it alien to you or did it, I mean, did it, what was your reaction when you learned that stuff? What did your generation think when you learned about segregation? Did it seem like it was so far distant, such an impossible Evil that we—you were surprised we we ever had a, an America that did that. That there was laws on the books that blacks couldn't marry whites. Just talk to me. What when a you learned about this stuff, yeah. what was your what was your thought? A little bit of both. Yeah. I think
3: uh, the people around me um, took many of these things that we were taught and continued to do so in an attempt to almost uh, vilify the past. And, they and, find, and the country? Yes, okay. and the country as okay. well, yeah. certainly. Um, personally, I can remember a very distinctive time. I mean, growing up, it did seem so foreign to me in a uh, a post-civil rights generation that we would ever have discriminated based on such fickle things like that. Yeah. But I can remember a distinct moment um, talking to someone of an older generation when I was, oh, I want to say probably anywhere between 10 and 12, I went to uh, D.C., And I went to Monticello, the home of our former president. And if you you may recall that there was uh, around ten to fifteen years ago a discussion around uh, his lineage, Mm
1: -hmm. Thomas Jefferson,
3: a um, a a child that he had with one of his slaves, yes, Sally Hemings. Yes, I found it so. So foreign, the idea that um, there was a a, a challenge over this and and in talking about this with someone of an older generation, they were like, well, because he was, you know, against that color, you know, and there were people that uh, throughout the past, you would say, 200 years wanted to, you, you could say, hide this lineage because of the the racial aspect and i found that so foreign i you know being a very young inquisitive student i was like well you know did you know we were waiting for dna evidence they didn't know you know there was a lot of who knows who say hearsay and i just found it so completely foreign that for 200 years um somebody would try to, to to hide a lineage just just based on race and in discussing that with an older generational figure in my life at that time I think that um, there were two different viewpoints. In my viewpoint, it was, oh, this is someone who, um, you know, they waited to to be very sure about the evidence regarding Miss Sally and her lineage to President Jefferson. And we found DNA evidence in the late 90s that, concluded that was the case and i said all right you know well that seems reasonable they waited about 200 years they found out they had the science behind them and the person that i was discussing it was well you know that's because they were racist and they tried to hide this evidence and I'm like well you know maybe we have different viewpoints based
1: on the eras in which we grew up but was it shut thank you for that interesting by the way you said the house of our former president you know, he thought that was amongst the least of his accomplishments. Do you know the three things he had put on his gravestone where he's buried?
3: I—I I mean, president I've seen is his not grade. one of them.
1: Okay, one of well, president of one, well, founder of the University of Virginia, author of the Declaration of Independence, and author of the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. He thought that the presidency of the United States was lesser it was a than lesser those title. things. Yeah, yeah, he wanted to be known by those three things going forward. But you didn't have a view of. Sh- a view of shock when you learned about segregation, or did you? It was was your view no. My God, we did that? Or was your view more like, Okay, I the, think many of the like people, any society we had growing pains.
3: I think many of the people around me, as I kind of mentioned, used it to say, you know, that was an abomination yeah, sure. and they, they vilified the past yeah. and you know. But I think the prevailing attitude from people of my generation and probably younger is that we are past that unfortunately there are those forces in my generation that think we have not right right that's the debate right that
1: we're still as bad as we were and i don't mean growing pains in a sense of diminishing it i mean growing pains in the sense of ever evolving into what the constitution called a more perfect union all right let me um take a quick break let me come back with another thought on that Where do you go to invest when you see the problems with our bank failures and the stock market's volatility, the talk of recession, and obvious enduring inflation? Why Refi is where you go. They have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it whatever you like and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. They're based here locally and I encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there and you won't get a sales pitch and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you do meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust them and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm and you can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. The justifications for these race-based solutions kind of come to us in the face of not only where most Americans are and not only what our founding ethos was that we have so in so many cases departed from, and I want to say in some cases um, deny I want to say that there is a civil rights apparatus, a modern-day civil rights apparatus that wants us to de- wants to deny us not only our history, but the history of our country that would have kept us egressed from racism, that would have kept us out of the realm of racism, that wouldn't have kowtowed to the 1619 kind of narrative. The 1619 narrative isn't new, as I was making the point earlier. It's It's been around before... Our, Nicole Hannah Jones was born. It was called the Lost Cause, the Lost Cause view of American history. It was the 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 view of the Civil War and the view of the American founding from the Confederacy's perspective, where they thought the Declaration of Independence was a lie, and their leaders, from Alexander Stevens and their philosophical, um, their philosophical founders like John C. Calhoun, would say. It's, it's it's the theory of the American history as read by John Tawney, uh, by Roger B. Tawney and Dred Scott. It's the view of American history that lost. It's the view of American history that takes no account of what the founders actually said, what they actually meant, what Lincoln actually said and meant, what Frederick Douglass actually said and meant, and what the majority of this country stood for. The... the and once we got into an integrationist ethic in the 1950s, look at how far we came. Half of Americans in 19 in the 1950s said they would move if a black person moved next door. Today, that, that percent is 1%, according to Gallup. In the 60s, 18%. Only 18% of Americans, they, they had a friend who was black. Today, it's 82%. The notion that we need to continue to divide people by race is the notion that we have to see people by race. This country long ago stopped doing that.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn